chapter 4. We're going to look at chapter 4 today and look at verses 1 all the way to 16. And if you're uh, new here uh, this morning, we have just been going through a series on Esther. So uh, I, I invite you to turn in your Bibles if you don't have a Bible. There should be a blue one in the uh, seat in front of you for you to take as your very own. And uh, as you're turning there, I'll just kind of catch you up because we're midway through the story. And uh, today's story is uh, the section of the story that we're going to look at today is the part of the story where Esther agrees to help. But before we get there, I just want to recap by uh, leaving, uh, reminding you where we left off last week, which was that the people of God are in deep trouble. Like, and I'm, I'm not talking like uh, little trouble. I'm talking about big, 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 big trouble. If you go back to uh, Esther chapter 3, verse 13, it says this. Letters were sent out to by couriers to all kings and provinces with the instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. The 13th uh, day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder all their goods. Now, just to give you a little bit of a illustration about the gravity of the situation. If you were to Google right now how many living or professing Hebrews there are on the face of the planet, uh, there's about 16 million-ish uh, Jews living worldwide today. And about 7 million of them uh, live in Israel today, the nation state of Israel, the rest are scattered throughout the world, most of them here in the United States. And the reason that I bring that up is because there is some debate going back and forth on this thing, but Bible scholars believe that around this story, around the time in the, where the Jews were living in Persia, there's anywhere between 20, 10 and 15 million Jews living in Persia. So to give you, to give you an analogy about what, it's, what, what this is like, Imagine right now if there was a decree to eradicate every Hebrew person on the planet today, and that is what the severity or the gravity of the situation is in the story that we're reading right here. Okay, And to go furthermore, I don't know if I let you know this last time, but um, this is a date. They, they, what they did is they determined a date. They said, here is a date. One day, a 24-hour period where we're going to annihilate as many people as that we can. And they determine this by casting lots, right? And what we mean by casting lots is not necessarily what you and I would think of in, in the sense that, you know, you pick the shortest straw or whatever. It's actually a form of uh, um, divination, if you would. And this is a... Uh, they, they went, what, what Haman did is he actually went and sought out uh, from his religious leaders and the spirits that he was consulting a day in which they were to kill. And I want to point that out because what that essentially says is that this day was determined by demonic influences. And I want to bring that up because here's what I've noticed is, is that you could make an argument that every time there is a great move of God in the Bible, 
that Satan's number one strategy is to annihilate the people of God. Why does he want to annihilate the people of God? Because it's through the people of God that Jesus Christ comes and saves the entire world. So if you can annihilate that, then you can annihilate the fact that there is a Savior. So for example, if you were to go from, oh, that's, uh, that's enough. If you were to go to Exodus 1.22, you remember the story, the Israelites are in captivity. The Pharaoh commanded that all his people, every son that is to be born to the Hebrews, shall be cast into the Nile. You shall let every daughter live. Right there, mass infanticide. Or if you go to the Christmas story, Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when they had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent, out, sent and killed all male children in Bethlehem and in the region who were two years or under, according to the time that was ascertained by the wise men. Why is he doing that? Because he's trying to prevent Jesus from coming. And in the story, I would want to submit to you that that is exactly what is going on here. This is a dark, dark story. And it is a story in which you need a savior. The people need someone to save them. And in this case, what is happening, and I've told you this before, and I don't want to sound like a broken record, but there's no mention of God in Esther. So here you have the situation where millions and millions of people are facing brutal death and torture and their stuff plundered and God's not anywhere to be seen or heard. There's no prophet. There's no pillar of fire. There's no Moses figure. There's no angel coming down. There's, there's nothing. And here is where we need a savior. We need God to come and save us. And the whole reason that I'm bringing this up is because Esther is a story where God is not mentioned, but God is still working to protect his people. And I want you to catch that because even in those moments in your life where it seems that God is not present, where he's silent, I want you never to make mistake his silence for his absence in your life. And we're seeing that in the story, and you're about to see that as we read going on. So that's sort of the catch-up if you haven't been with us. And uh, we begin our story at chapter 4, verse 1, where it says that Mordecai mourns. So Mordecai has, uh, as you know, is uh, Esther's caretaker. And what has happened is that the edict has gone out until all of Persia that this is to happen. And Mordecai finds out about it. And this is what happens when we read in the text. It says this, when Mordecai learned that all, all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried aloud with a bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate. For no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, in fact, it was last week, uh, Stan uh, started taking us through the Sermon on the Mount. And what was the first thing that was in the Sermon on the Mount? Does anyone remember? It starts with a B. Oh, come on, guys. I know you can't be asleep that early. The Beatitudes. And we went through all, all the Beatitudes, and there was a particular one that I remember that we were questioning, and it was, uh, it was, blessed are those who mourn, 
right? And so as the discussion went on, we talked about what mourning meant or what blessed meant. And the idea of blessing is to bestow a favor. So the question that was raised, I don't know if you remember this, was how is, how is mourning a blessing? Well, I think our text today kind of answers that question because it's in Mordecai's mourning. It's in this, what he's doing is, is he's not just lamenting privately. This is a, this is a public lament. It's, it's a little bit of a public protest. And it's this public protest, it's this lament that gets Esther's attention. The degree has been sent out. The date has been sent and Mordecai is powerless but he's going to do something. He's going to mourn. He's going to publicly identify himself with God's people. And because of this, Mordecai is not allowed to enter into the entrance of the king because he's grieving, wailing, and mourning. And so what winds up happening is um, Esther is a little bit confused. Esther, because she is in a bubble, is clear, clueless. She doesn't know what is going on. Now, you might be wondering why she wouldn't know that, because this edict was given to the king. But if you know further in story, it's been about a month since she's seen the king. And on top of that, she has to keep her Jewish identity a secret, which I would assume meant that there has to be some distance between her and her people. And she goes on and says this in verse 4, when, yet, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that Mordecai might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend to her. And, he ordered, and, he, and she ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn why this was. So Esther is in a place where she has no idea. She, what this really is, is that she hasn't really seen or been in contact with Mordecai. She's in the palace, and he's out city, outside in the city of Susa. He's weeping and wailing and mourning. The media shows up. He's got a little bit of a crowd. He's trending on Twitter. They've started a Facebook page. It's getting a little traction, and so he, she tells him, I want to meet with you, but you can't come into the palace with morning light attire. You need to get changed to get access to me, so come in. And this is what he says. He says, no, it's too premature. The cameras finally show up. We're finally starting to get a little bit of attention here. Please don't. We, we need, I, I need you to see this. We, I'm making a protest. Please don't murder us all. It's too early for me to put on the clothing and come to see you. So what happens is Esther sends out someone to find out all the information. And essentially what goes on is Mordecai then informs Esther and pleads for help. And it says in verse 7, And Mordecai told him all the things that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg for his favor and plead with him on his behalf for her people. 
And Hattach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. In other words, what is happening in this section of the scripture is he's saying, let them know that you are a Jew. Tell him my people are going to be murdered. Fall on your knees in front of the king and beg for mercy. At this point in the book, Esther has been passive, not active. She's been silent. She's not been speaking. Others have made decisions for her. She's not made any decisions for herself in this regard. And how easy it is for us to look at her circumstances of her life and say, it's out of my control. Everything is too big and I'm too small. The, cur- the current of, our culture is like, of her culture is like an enormous river. And she's just kind of like a little leaf being carried along the current. There's nothing I can do. Esther appears like that right up until this moment in the story. Everything's happening around her. Decisions are being made for her. People are speaking on her behalf. And she's not being active. She's not really making any progress spiritually. There's no indication at this point, no hint that she's prayed, read the scriptures, or worshipped with God. None of that. Or even offered a sacrifice of sin. Now you might be saying to yourself, It's a no-brainer, just do it. And here's where everything kind of pauses in the book. And you say to Esther, it's your time, it's go time. This is what you are here for. And basically she says she's not going to do it. And I just want to stop and make it a point to explain something. When we distance ourselves and when we hide, we do the same thing as Esther in, in the sense that we become the oblivious to the plight and the destruction of sin around us. Going on in the story, Esther then becomes scared to help. She says this to Mordecai, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one from whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he, she may live. But as for me, I have been not called to the king in 30 days. So here's what you need to understand. I, I don't know if you know, I, someone correct me if, if I'm wrong on this, but during the days of Abraham Lincoln, you were, if you were uh, homeless or you didn't have a place to stay or you didn't know where you were going to live or anything of that, you could actually take up and sleep in the White House. Okay? Today, though, if you go to the White House, can you do that? No. Why not? Well, why is the fence there? <laughs> I know that there's a fence. Why is, the, why is there a fence there? Security. Thank you. To keep out some of the, you know, rebel rousers or whatever. And so when Persia first started, it was almost the same sort of deal. But what wound up happening was it became this massive empire. And so you couldn't just go up to the king just because you wanted to see the king. And so in order to protect the king from uh, security, they made a rule that you could not enter the king unless the king summoned you, or if you went in without his permission, he had to like uh, extend his staff to you. Okay, that was the only way you could do it. This is called the, the law of the Medes and the Persians. And so here, here's Esther, and Esther is being asked 
to go and do something to save her people at the expense of her own life. Moving on, this gets back to Mordecai. She, she Mordecai says, I need your help. Esther says, I'm not going to give you my help. I'm too scared. Mordecai responds. And he says this. And we're, I'm just going to read it, and then I'm going to circle back to it in a moment. But it says this. Then Mordecai told, her, told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at, at, at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your whole father's household will perish. And who knows that whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So this gets word back to Esther and somehow there's something in what Mordecai said that changes her mind. And Esther then agrees to save her people. And this is how it says. It says, go. This is Esther talking. And she says, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. And hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will do also a fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is what? against the law. And look at this. This is my this is why I love Esther. What does she say next? If I perish, I perish. Esther is so cool. She's one of my heroes. She is awesome. I want to make a couple observations about this text this morning and then hopefully uh, a couple applications and then I'll let you go. But in order for me to explain the first observation, I, I think I just need to backtrack a minute and explain to you how I approach the Old Testament and how I do my hermeneutic for the Old Testament. You see, when Jesus died and rose again, there is this story of these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And Jesus was walking beside them, and without them knowing that it was Jesus, and they were conversing back and forth, and they were sharing that they were disappointed that Jesus didn't turn out to be the Messiah that they thought he was going to be. Jesus, in response, said, How foolish and slow of heart are you to believe. And then there's something that he says that has changed the way that I look at the Old Testament. And he says this, Then he began to open up the scriptures, and starting with the law and the prophets, he began to explain to them, why the Messiah must die. And I've often used that as a way to interpret the Old Testament. The Old Testament is in fact a way to look forward to the cross of Jesus Christ. And so if there's any text, when I look at an Old Testament verse, if there's any text that points to Jesus, I'm going to point it out. And I think today that this is one of them. Because here's what I'm going to tell you. The first observation I'm going to make is a pretty obvious one. That's why they call it an observation. Get it? Oh, come on. That's funny. I really need to work on my jokes. First observation is this, is that the people needed someone to save them. And I mean that both in a spiritual sense and in a very physical sense. The very first time that you and I hear about the word salvation in the Bible is Exodus chapter 14, verse 13, where the people of God have 
Uh, they're about to cross the Red Sea, and they're scared because the, the Egyptians are coming. And Moses says to them, Do not fear, for today you shall see the salvation of the Lord. And salvation in the Bible always means one thing, and it means this, is that you are to be saved, delivered, or made whole from whatever it is that is destroying you. And in this sense, and in what we are looking here today, is that what is happening is the people really need someone to save them, to deliver them, to make them whole from Haman's order. They need a literal savior, someone to come in and be the hero in their story. And I say this as a great illustration for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because just like the gospel, or just like the story here, you and I are indebted to sin. Sin is out to destroy you, it's out to annihilate you, it's out to kill you, it's out to destroy everything about it, and you cannot do a thing about it. You are totally and utterly helpless, and you need an Esther figure in your story, someone to come and save you, and that person is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the better version of Esther. Jesus is the one that advocates on your behalf. Jesus is the one that comes in and looks at what is going on in your life, your desperation, your helplessness, and he sees the darkness closing in. And he hears the wailing, he hears the cry, and he's, and he's looking at you and he says, I'm going to save you. That's one of the reasons why I like Esther. So number one, the people need saving. And as much that you and I need someone to, to be the savior in our story. Number two, Esther is asked to give up her safety and place herself in a situation where she can lose her life in order to save her people. She is being asked to be brave in a moment that costs her her safety. And I just want to stay there, and I just want to make this point, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll go on from here, is that there are times when following God will require us to risk and put ourselves in dangerous circumstances. Like Esther, there will be times where we must be brave enough to come out from hiding and admit our identity in Christ, just like she had to admit her identity with the Jewish people, even if that means that we should perish. There will be times when we will have to speak up, where we have to risk, where we will have to put ourselves in harm's way. And I'm, I'm not saying that you should intentionally look for that, but there are times where faith requires risk. And sometimes when those moments come, I don't know how you feel like that, but there's something that goes on in my heart when I am asked to do something, the word of God speaks to me and convicts me, and the very first thought that I have in my head is, I'm not brave enough to be brave for God. Does anyone ever struggle with that? Yeah. A few of you. The rest of you, we're going to have to talk about your honesty. I've, I've dealt with this a lot. Do you know that? I've talked about the decision to move here from Winnipeg, and you know, as 
much as you wouldn't think that would be scary, that's scary for me. It would be easier and safer for me to take just a normal job, to come out to Three Hills, Alberta, to come to a church that I don't know, and risk my own family for and have it not work out. Sometimes following Jesus will require risk. And it will require us to come out of hiding. Just like Esther. That is the situation that Esther is put in here. Remember that she is she has been hiding her identity for a long time. And I'm not just talking about weeks or months, I'm talking about years. She has been queen now for about five to six years. And in this entire time, she's had the power and the authority to reveal herself as a Jew, and she has not. And the problem with hiding, here's what I'm going to tell you is the problem with hiding is, is that when you do that, when the moment comes, when you are forced into a position where you actually have to speak up and say something and reveal that you follow Jesus, what winds up happening is we spend five or six years cultivating and practicing a heart that the opposite way so that when we need to, it actually becomes hard. That is the situation she's in. She's like, if I go, I die. Maybe I'll just keep it safe. And then Mordecai, here's, here's what's so cool about what happens. Mordecai recognizes this. Esther is saying, I'm not brave enough to be brave for God. And Mordecai responds with a, I don't know, a rousing speech, maybe a convicting speech. And, and it's in this response that Esther finds her courage to go to the king. And so what I want to do for the remaining amount of time today is I just want to point out a few things about the dialogue between Mordecai and Esther that can encourage you and strengthen you in a moment where you need to stand for God and you're scared. So the first thing I want to point out is it's not going to sound very encouraging, but it's true nonetheless, is number one, hiding will not save you. Look at the text. After, after Esther uh, says, no, I'm not going to do it, Mordecai then says this. She told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. He then goes on to say, for if you have kept silent for at this time, Relief and deliverance will come from, for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. It's kind of a thinly veiled threat, isn't it? Right? It's kind of like saying to her, listen, if you go to the king, yeah, you could die. But you're going to die anyway. You're going to die either way. Okay? And so what he's pointing out to her is that... The fact that you will hide in the king's palace will not save you from what is going to happen. I'm just getting my notes here. Um, see, here's the thing. There are times when we are called upon in life to make a stand. And the cowardly say, I won't make a stand. I'll save my life. Listen, friends, cowardice does not save your life. In the end of, at the, end of the day, you will die. Do you want to die with courage or do you want to die a coward? 
In the end of the day, that's what her uncle says to her. He says, you've got to recognize that your life will be counted as among your, among your people. You won't be saved. And here's what I've noticed about when evil rules. I don't know if you've caught this or not. This is something that you can pick up, pick up in the book of First and Second Kings. But when evil people lead the world, the godly hide. The godly hide. And that is what Esther is doing. She's hiding. Retreating from culture won't save you. Don't think that because you live in Three Hills or put your kids at PCA or you have a retreat for your families or you're homeschooled. None of that is bad, by the way. That they, you will escape any more of the hardship or anything else that the, our Christian and the brothers who don't have those things will have. Retreating from culture will not save you. You're going you're gonna to suffer either way. Number two, God's purposes will stand. It says this, For if you keep silent in this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. And here you and I come as close as we can to seeing God's providence. God's not mentioned, but our uncle is very clear that God has a purpose for the Jews and he will deliver them. Here's the truth that is very encouraging for you and I today. God will never leave us or forsake us. That's why, that's why he says what he says. Friends, you may not walk with God, but if you're a believer, God will walk with you. You may say, I've walked away from God. And I'll tell you what, if you turn around in apprentice, he's right there. Because the God of the Bible says is that when we are faithless, he will what? Oh, come on, guys. He will remain faithful. The most common command I've seen in the Bible is fear not. Because there are lots of reasons to be afraid. Mordecai here has a lot of reasons to be afraid. His stubbornness could lead to the murder of lots of people. And every time that I've studied the Bible and it says fear not, it immediately then says why. It says, for I am with you. God is with his people. God will always be with his people. And this is what Mordecai is saying to her. This is that more deliverance will come. God is with his people when they're sinning. God is with his people when they're in rebellion, when they're in Susa, when they should have been in Israel, when they're working for Xerxes instead of working for the king of kings, when their faith is private instead of being public, when they're disobedient, when they should be obedient, when they're in circumstances they shouldn't be like being married to a Gentile pagan king who thinks he is God. This is what is exemplary from what Esther's life, and this is what makes Esther one of the great heroes of the Bible. Esther's life teaches us that God's purposes will always stand, that they are unstoppable. Please understand that whatever we decide to do with our lives, whether we act courageously or not courageously, understand that God will still win in the end. And you're going to have to decide whether or not you're going to be courageous at the end of the day. Number three, God is where God is, where you are is where God has placed you. There's a very, very famous line that I'm sure all of you know if you've read the book of Esther in this, in this passage, and it says this, and who knows 
whether or not you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who knows that you've, been put, you've come to the palace with all the stuff that you went through, Esther, the disappointments, the heartache, being torn from your family, not being able to live the life as a normal Jew, but being put into a harem, spending that humiliating night with the king, and then suddenly being made queen, and all of that stuff, everything that goes down with that, this all happened for this one moment, to save the people. And we're, that's where everything comes together in this book. Number four, this might be a little controversial one, but I'm, I'm going to say it anyway. Sometimes civil disobedience is called for. Look at what she says. Then I will go to the king, though it is what? Against the law. I'm very, very nervous about telling you about this one. Because the truth of the matter is, is I think sometimes we're too eager to disobey the law. And I would render to you that civil disobedience should be the last card that we as Christians play. But sometimes it is required. It is required in order to save her people here. I think it happens with Vashti when she refuses to go to the king's command. And on top of that, I think you can see it in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. When the, <clears throat> when the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin said, don't tell us about Jesus anymore. And Peter responds by saying, we must obey God rather than man. You see, friends, we do have a higher calling. Okay. And number four, and I'll leave you with, or last one, I will leave you with this. In order to be a person that has courage in the moments where you don't feel like you have courage, you must be willing to accept the worst possible thing that you can happen. My favorite line in the whole chapter is this. If I perish, I perish. Have you ever wondered, like, have you ever been in a situation where you have been called by God, you know that God is convicting you in his word to do something, but you're like, I'm too afraid to do it. Well, how do you get enough quote-unquote faith to do that? Here's what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage you to do what Esther did and have the mentality of saying, if I perish, I perish. So what do I mean by that? I mean that you think about what, what you think about your situation and you just ask the question, what is the worst thing that, you, that could happen? And please don't over-exaggerate it because, you know, if, if it's something like, I need to trust God with my finances, what's the worst thing that could happen? Well, I could die. Okay. Well, that could be the worst thing that could happen for everyone. Give me a realistic version of what would happen if the worst thing happens. Okay? What would that be? You die without Christ? That's right. And here's what I would say. As you look at your circumstance and you just kind of say, you accept the worst as a possibility and that you're okay with it, and you move ahead. You take your fear, what you're afraid of, and your faith with you. Do you know that every time I get up to speak, I'm afraid? Right? There's like those butterflies in my stomach. Like, see, I don't know if you know this or not, but you guys are not emotional <laughs> when it comes to church. So when I preach, I don't 
there's this kind of like stone-faced thing. And I don't know if you're mad at me or not mad at me, and I get afraid that you're mad at me, and I have to overcome that. But the, the, the point that I'm getting at is that I take that fear, and I say, okay, well, that's happened. That's the worst that can happen. And I just walk out in faith with that. And that's what Esther's doing right here. She's saying, okay, the worst thing that could happen to me is I perish. And she's like, if I perish, I perish. She's accepted the worst case scenario. And I would say to you that if you're afraid of, and you don't have that courage, and you're looking for that courage, I think one of the things you can do is, is just kind of brainstorm what the worst thing would be, accept that that might happen, and then go and do it. So just as a illustration, years and years and years and years ago, I went to Prairie Bible College. And one summer I had the opportunity to uh, have a job that paid for college in its entirety and one that didn't. And back then money, and it's, it can still be, money is, money is a contentious issue for me. I can be afraid of not having enough. And so I knew that God really had to work in my life on that. So I think at this point in time in my life, what, what God was saying to me is, hey, I need you to trust me with your finances. So what I wound up doing was I decided that I wouldn't do any student loans for school and I, wouldn't, and I would take the job that only paid half the amount that I needed. And then I went to school and I went to Prairie and they said to me, you owe 10 grand. And I was like, uh, I have six grand, right? And I needed to trust God that God would provide the rest of the money. Now here's, here's where it comes in. I said, what's the worst thing that could happen? What's the, most, what's the worst thing that could happen? The worst thing that could happen was... Uh, I don't go to school for a year. Am I willing to accept that? Yes. If I perish, I perish. And then I could trust God that he would provide in that. And he did. For three years, I would come to school with not enough money, and by the end, I would have $1,500 left over as a way of God's provision. But it was in the moments that God was trying to teach me to rely on him and not my monetary funds. In order to do that, though, I had to be brave, and brave meant that I had to accept that the worst thing that could happen. And I think that that's what's happening when Esther says, I'm going to go, and if I perish, I perish. See, the, the, the great thing about Esther is this. Even if you've been a fence-sitter of all of your life, and that, I said this before, this is my evaluation of Esther, I know the Bible gives no evaluation, but I tend to see her until this one moment as a woman who is making morally compromising decisions to save her own life. And suddenly she realizes that she can no longer be in that place, and suddenly she's got to take a bold stand. She's going to walk into the king's throne room, even if it costs her life. She's, going to, she's being willing to die for the sake of preserving God's people. See, that's Esther. Suddenly, things change. She goes from being a compromised woman to a woman of principle and courage. And she will be used to save, by God to save her people. And that's where I'm going to leave the story today. Oh, Lasalle, would you lead us in one more song?